is the least understood book of all of the 66 books in our Bible. Its message seems to be camouflaged behind a mask of obscurity. It has been classified unfathomable by finite man. And yet it was never God's intention because this book is to be a revelation, not a concealment. It's the final volume in the Divine Library, and it provides for us the finishing touches of the whole panorama of the biblical story. Without the book of Revelation, our Bible would be quite incomplete. It would be like a sterling story without an ending. It would be like a moving drama without a proper climax. It's a capstone to all of the previous revelations in the Bible. Many of the truths begin back in the book of Genesis. They are concluded here in the book of Revelation. For example, in Genesis we see the commencement of heaven and earth. When we get to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we see the consummation of heaven and earth. In Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we see the dawn of Satan and his activity on <coughs> men. In Revelation, we see the doom of Satan and his activity among men. In Genesis, we see the entrance of sin and the curse as a result. In Revelation, we see the exit of sin and the curse itself. In Genesis, we see the tree of life uh, relinquished. In Revelation, we see the tree of life regained. In Genesis, the death, death enters among men. In Revelation, death exits. In Genesis, sorrow is begun. <coughs> In Revelation, sorrow is banished forever. <clears throat> this book is God's final word to man, the book of Revelation. It's not to be studied simply for the satisfaction of our curiosity. It's to have a sanctifying effect upon our lives. It's to make a drastic change in us. The magnitude of truths in here are uncomparable because here we see in this book earthly as well as heavenly activity. We see angels and demons, wars in heaven and Armageddon, the golden millennium and the destruction of Satan, and the Christian, uh, the creation of a new heaven and new earth. But throughout all these things are, are 
although they're prominent in the book, it's primarily a revelation of the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's why the sermon is entitled, as you see on the board, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. John was writing to a group of Christians at Asia Minor who were chained with the shackles of affliction. And so his message is to them, take your eyes off your afflictions and put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his message for us today. Take your eyes off your circumstances of life and put them on the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the subject of Revelation. John says the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 1, which uh, chapter 1, verse 1, which God gave unto him. Jesus is the subject of this book. The word revelation is translated apocalypsos. That's the Greek word that is, uh, we get the word revelation from. It's a combination of a verb and a proposition. A verb, a calypsos, the last part of that word, which means to hide. It just means to cover up, uh, to close the curtain, as it were. But attached to that verb, in front of it, in the Greek word, is a little proposition, a preposition called apple. Uh, and that means to snatch away, to remove. And so this word revelation means to remove the curtain. It's a revelation, a removal of the curtain. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. <coughs> In the book, the curtain is pulled back. And we're now allowed to see Jesus in glory and in his majesty. Now that's a different glimpse of Jesus, isn't it? In the Gospels, for example, that's not what we see necessarily. For the most part, we see the humiliation and the humanity side of Jesus, the human side. Now he's fully God in the Gospels, that's understood. He's fully deity. But for the most part, his glory is covered over by his humanity. And so what we see is a suffering servant in the Gospels. He was hung up for our hang-ups, humiliated that we might be liberated. We see the human side of Jesus, born in poverty, uh, reared in obscurity, he knew hunger and thirst. He was beaten, buffeted, and bruised. He was plunged into the abyss of nagging agony, and he died in ignominy. But yet, even in the Gospels, we see glimpses of His glory. Let me give you some examples. On the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Uh, Jesus literally outshone a midday sun. Now that was a glimpse merely of his glory. In his miracles, we see the uh, glimpses of his glory. When Jesus could walk up to the tomb of a man who had been dead for several days, and his body was in the mode of decaying, and Jesus could stand there and say, Lazarus, come forth. And blood began to move in Lazarus' veins. Uh, his muscles began to twitch. His heart began to palpitate. And that was a glimpse of his, of his glory in the raising of Lazarus. And you need to recognize this fact, that if Jesus had not designated specifically that Lazarus by name was to come from, uh, was to raise from the dead, every man <coughs> in that cemetery would have raised from the dead because of his power, because of his authority. We don't often think like that, but that's the way we should think, analytically and very uh, investigative into the statements made in our Bible. Because every word is the breath of God. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. Every word is the breath of God. There needs to be this respect for every word. And there is declared that Jesus named this man that was to come out of, the, out of death's tomb. And just as the Gospels revealed, uh, reveal his humiliation... Revelation, the book we're looking at this morning, reveals his glorification. For example, in the Gospels, Jesus receives death. In Revelation, he rebukes death. In the Gospels, he come to convict. In Revelation, he come to condemn. In the Gospels, his enemy applauded but in Revelation, his enemy appealed. In the Gospels, we see him in misery. But in Revelation, we see him in majesty. In the Gospels, he is the Savior. But in Revelation, he is the sanctifier. In the Gospels, he is pierced. But in Revelation, he is praised. In the Gospels, he is the victim, but in Revelation, he is the victor. In the Gospels, they gave him thorns, but in Revelation, he gets a throne. A throne. In the Gospels, he gets a cross, but in Revelation, he gets a crown. In the Gospels, they call him a criminal, but in Revelation, he is a conqueror. In the Gospels, he has to accept the guilt for you and I. But in Revelation, he accepts the glory. So once you've seen him in glory, you're never the same if you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're never the same. Just ask some who have seen him in glory. Isaiah, did you see him in glory? And in chapter 6, he says, yes, I saw him in glory. And when I did, I cried, woe is me, I am undone. Peter, did you see? <coughs> did, 
Did you see him in glory? Yes, I did. And when I saw it, I cried, Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. John, did you see him in glory? Yes, and when I did, I fell at his feet as though dead. Job, did you see his glory? Yes, I did. And I repented in sackcloth and ashes. Paul, did you see his glory? Yes, I did. Blinded by a light brighter than a noonday sun. But in the next few days, Paul <coughs> saw more in his blindness than he ever saw with his eyes wide open. He was there transformed from Saul, the antagonist, to Paul, the apologist. Just a glimpse of his glory, and he was never, ever the same. The Apostle Paul. Jesus is definitely the subject of the Revelation. I call your attention to the significance of this book. As we begin, as we continue to read the statements made in chapter 1, verse beginning in verse 1. John goes on to say there, uh, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. That, uh, that's the significance of this book. That statement must be read in light of the blazing fires of the Roman uh, persecution. It was uh, written during the horrible time of Domitian, uh, his persecution, around 78 A.D. And the situation was omnibus for the church because they, was the brunt, they took the brunt of this uh, awful uh, ruler by the name of Domitian. He claimed to be God. He made that claim. That's why he no longer exists. The embryonic community, the church, was the constant target of imperial harassment, and it was the pros had, uh, uh, and the prospects had terrible uh, possibilities for believers. Domitian had set himself up as God, and demanded that those people worship him. Of course, you're familiar with all this, I'm sure. And so, what they needed was a message of hope. And that's why the book of Revelation. John was writing them that they might be fortified in this fight. Adversity was assailing them with hurricane force. Their glowing sunrise was being transformed into the darkest night. Their highest hopes were blasted. Their noblest dreams were shattered by this Domitian and his government. The storms of disappointment were raging. The winds of disaster were blowing. The tidal waves of grief were beating in against their lives. Emotionally, they were ripped to shreds. They'd gone into the kitchen of sorrow and licked every pan. And out from the darkness and the dampness of a Patmos cave, comes the tremendous message from the Apostle John. 
as he tells them in many ways, take your eyes off your circumstances. Uh, I'm writing to show unto you the unveiled Jesus. So put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. How could John write such a, tri uh, a triumphant message? Wasn't he hurting, exiled on the Isle of Patmos? He took his eyes off his circumstances. He put his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Isle of Patmos was a Roman punishment and a banishment of some of the most uh, uh, highest criminals that Rome knew of. And John was exiled there. You found your own food or you died. There was nothing provided for you. It was cold as the waves of the sea uh, washed upon the rocks of its shoreline. John was probably never closer to God in his life as he was when he was exiled on that island. There, that patmos of Roman persecution suddenly become a door of a sublime communication with heavenly things. Now you wouldn't think that, but that is true. You draw the closest to God in the worst of times. Persecution has that effect. Suffering has that effect on us. His hands and his feet were in chains, but they couldn't bind up his soul. John was free in his spirit to be transformed by a vision to see some fantastic things that he was commissioned to write about. He was doomed to a rock of exile, and in that he began to soar with prophetic ecstasy. They shut him out from the world around him, so he just <coughs> wandered through the heavenlies. And thus, from the uh, bleakest of circumstances, has emerged the most comprehensive document of events that's known to man. John took his eyes off his circumstances, you see, and God turned tragedy into triumph. And that's how God works. He specializes in that, doesn't he? Romans 8 and verse 23, I think it is. We know that the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that we're receiving. Because God can take that suffering regardless of what it is. And it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Romans 8 and also 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 verse 17. Now all of us have storms in our life. And Jesus is the only one that we can trust. He has everything under control. We worry about the politics in our country, and we shouldn't, because God controls these governments. Nebuchadnezzar learned that in the fourth chapter of Daniel. In verse 34, after eating grass like an ox for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar comes out of his suffrage understanding as he testifies to that God is the God who rules in the affairs of men. He sets up kings and he brings kings down. 
and he does according to his bidding in the armies of heaven, and no man stays his hand of action when he sets it to do something, nor do they call him into question as to what he does. He don't answer to the councils of men. He don't answer to the United Nations. And so, John just took his eyes off his circumstances and God turned tragedy into triumph. So all of us have storms in our life and Jesus is the only one we can trust. He is everything under control. We studied here a, week, a couple weeks ago the authority of Christ. There is no authority here that he doesn't isn't in command of. You take your eyes off the storm, off the stormy sea in your life, and you put your eyes on the Lord of the seas. That's the idea. We sing a song that little boys, particularly me, that I liked when I was a boy. Master, the tempest is raging. Carest thou not that we perish? How can you lay asleep? The winds and the waves are not going to sink where Jesus abides. And if he abides in our heart, we're secure, aren't we? We have nothing to worry about. John was writing that they might be fortified, that they might be sanctified. He was saying, in essence, don't worry about Domitian. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one higher in authority and power. It's the will of God that everyone accepts the Lord Jesus Christ and goes on to live a life of sanctification. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It does not exclude you from the saving power of the blood of Jesus. His blood is not limited in its ability to save. Napoleon, one day, was looking back over the map of history, and he found a spot called Waterloo. And he said, if it hadn't have been for that little spot called Waterloo, Iowa would have ruled the world. Wonder who brought the Waterloo. I believe the devil does the same thing. He looks over his map of history, and he finds one little spot called Calvary. And he says, if it were not for that one spot called Calvary, I would have ruled the world. I'll tell you why that one spot stopped him. Because that's the spot where Jesus shed his blood. And that blood cleanses from all unrighteousness. We sing a song that manifests it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains.
So finally this morning, the symbolism of the book as it unveils and unmasks the Lord Jesus Christ before our eyes. It says, And he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant John. He could have said, He sent and signified it, which means the same thing. It was written in signs and symbols largely. Jesus has already proven that he can turn signs and symbols into reality. In Genesis 3.15, Jesus had to be the seed of woman, and he was, Galatians 4, verse 4. In Genesis 12.3, as we start in the early part of the Bible, he's to be the seed of Abraham. That happened, declared in Matthew 1, verse 1. In Genesis 49.10, he must descend from the tribe of Judah. He did, Luke 3, verse 33. In Micah 5 and verse 2, he's born in Bethlehem. He was, Luke 2, verse 4 says. In Isaiah 7.14, he's born of a virgin. He was, Luke 1, verse 31. In Hosea 11.1, uh, it records his flight down to Egypt. That was fulfilled. Matthew 2, verse 15. In Psalm 78, verse 2, he comes speaking in parables. That happened. Matthew 13, verse 34. In Isaiah 51, verse 1 and 2, he must heal the brokenhearted. And he did. Luke 4, verse 18. We don't have time to go through all these passages, but if anybody would like a copy of my lesson, I'd be glad to run off some copies and you can have it. In Isaiah 53 and verse 3, he must be rejected by his own people, the Jews. That happened, John 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. In, in Isaiah 53, verse 7, silence before his accusers, that happened. Mark 15, verse 5. In Psalms 22, and verse 6, forsaken by God the Father, that happened. Matthew 27, verse 46. In Isaiah 53 and verse 9, he was buried with the rich. Matthew 27, verse 60. The devil and all the hosts of hell must have rejoiced over that tomb, but they overlooked one sign. In Psalms 49 and verse 10, declared the resurrection. And in Mark 16, verse 6, the angel announced, he's not here, he is risen. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is unveiled in his glory and his splendor before our mortal eyes. If Jesus could authenticate the signs of his incarnation, he could authenticate the signs of his consummation, and he did. When you turn to the book of Revelation, you don't see him 
as he was yesterday. You see him as he is today, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. When you see Jesus, he's not dead in the tomb. He sees him, uh, excuse me, when John saw Jesus, he didn't, uh, he, he wasn't dead in a tomb. Uh, he sees him standing as a lamb having been slain in the book of Revelation. The lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. John 1 verse 29. <clears throat> Praise God for the unbelief, uh, Un, the unveiling of Jesus. Truly worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings forever and ever. Revelation 5 verse 12 and 13. So to conclude in a brief way our lesson this morning. <coughs> He died for your justification. He was raised for your sanctification. He now pleads for you through his invitation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. That's a statement made in Revelation 3, verse 20 and 21. There's an interesting thing about this uh, uh, picture of Jesus standing at a man's, the door of his heart and knocking. An artist centuries ago painted a picture of that scene. And if you look at it close, as Jesus stands there and knocks, there is no doorknob on the outside of that door. And the reason it isn't is because the artist understood that God will not force entry. You have to open the door and invite him in, into your life. And the interesting thing about all of that is that when Jesus steps through the threshold of the door of your heart, he comes in as a guest, and you're the host. You invited him in. But when he comes in and steps through that threshold, he comes with his provisions. And immediately, he becomes the host, and you, in your own heart, become the guest. Jesus is the revelation of the Word of God, the revealing of our Savior. The lesson's yours while we stand and sing our closing hymn. <laughs> Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, Come unto me. 